Uh, how many of you have ever been to City Hall downtown in Philly? City Hall, okay. How many of you were there for your court appearance? Okay, a couple of you. <laughs> okay, good. I might have been there for your court appearance on jury duty, I don't know. So City Hall, I remember in 2006 visiting Philadelphia for the first time. This is before we moved here. In 2006, I was on Market Street, and I looked down Market Street, and I saw this beautiful building lit up at night. It was, you know, it's white and they had lights pointed at it and I was being like, man, that is beautiful. I don't know what that building is. I thought it was a church with like the Pope on top or something, but it's William Penn on top of City Hall. And uh, our City Hall, our City Hall in, in Philly was when it was built, and it may still be the case, was the largest municipal building in America. Uh, it's, it's huge. City Hall is really big. The City Hall in my hometown is like on the back of the fire department. You know, like the back door of the fire department. But the city hall here is huge, uh, and it's beautiful. And if you've ever seen the guy on the top of the city hall, that's William Penn. William Penn was the founder of Philadelphia as well as the founder of Pennsylvania. In fact, Pennsylvania is named after his dad, and it means Penn's Woods or Penn's Forest, okay? William Penn, the founder of Philadelphia was actually a pretty good dude. Now, not everybody that was coming over to the United States and acquiring land at that time was a good dude, but William Penn actually was. He was a Quaker, so he didn't believe in violence, he didn't believe in stealing, he didn't believe in killing. And so, he, when he came here, he actually learned the customs and the language of the native uh, Americans who were the Lenape, who lived in this area and still do, he learned their customs and he learned their language and he got to know them and he actually paid for any land that he received. He paid them money for it, so he didn't take it. Uh, and he actually gave permission for them to come and go as they pleased to still hunt or fish or do whatever they wanted to do on the property. So William Penn established the city of Philadelphia as based on his Quaker values and he called Philadelphia a holy experiment. He wanted to see what it would be like for a city to value things like religious freedom and equality for everyone. And that was the beginning of the city of Philadelphia. So uh, he was not a perfect person, not a perfect man, but he seemed like he was making a genuine effort to live out his Christian values as he was establishing the city. If you go down to City Hall, you'll actually see, if you go under the archway that's uh, like, uh, goes over broad, or like with Broad Street, lines up with Broad Street, you might see this little plaque. This is on City Hall, okay? Uh, this little plaque, it's a picture of William Penn, and it, it's a prayer that William Penn wrote for the founding of the city of Philadelphia. So I know that you can't see it up on the screen. I'm going to read the, the prayer. It's not that long, but I just want to point out a few things from this prayer of William Penn from 1684. That's a long time ago. Okay, here's the prayer. And thou, Philadelphia, the virgin settlement of this province, the province being Pennsylvania, named before thou wert born, what love, what care, what service, and what travail there have been to bring thee forth and to preserve thee from such as would abuse and defile thee. Oh, that thou mayest be kept from the evil that would overwhelm thee, the, that faithful to the God of the mercies in the life of righteousness, thou mayest be preserved to the end. My soul prays to God for thee, that thou mayest stand in the day of trial, 
that thy children may be blessed and that thy people saved by his power. So in the beginning of this prayer, William Penn makes it a point to say what love, what service, what care, and what prayer went into the establishing of this city. This isn't just something that he did on a whim. He didn't like uh, throw up a shack and call it Philadelphia. He actually planned it. The way he designed the city, he was the first person to institute the grid, the street grid, the way that we have it in Philly where everything's corners and intersections and so That was a brand new idea. When that idea hit Europe, they were like amazed because they just, it's crazy over there, guys. I don't know. So uh, the grid system, like it was thoughtful. It was in, uh, intentional. He was prayerful about it. And he said, that's what brought about this city. And then at the end of the prayer, he says this, and I love this. He says, that the children may be blessed, referring to the generations of Philadelphians. He wants them to be blessed. I remember in 2008 where I was sitting when God told me to make the philosophy of our church bless Philadelphia. I didn't know that 340 years earlier, William Penn had already said that. He already said, God, bless thy children of Philadelphia meaning the generations and generations of generations of Philadelphians that are going to come. So our philosophy, Bless Philadelphia, I just found out this week, has 340 years of history to it, and it lines up perfectly with the, the prayer of William Penn. And he also says, and I love this, he says, Save thy people by your power. His prayer for the residents of Philadelphia was actually that they would get saved by God's power. I don't, I mean, I don't know like every city in America, but I think it'd probably be rare that the founders of cities would have public prayers for the conversion and salvation of the residents of the city. Now, the question I want to pose to you, and this is a rhetorical question, is why would the city put this plaque there publicly? You know, it's one thing that William Penn prayed it, that's great. But we're still displaying it 340 years later. Someone at City Hall, someone in authority, someone in government said, this prayer needs to be publicized and put out in public for people to see. I think the reason is it's important. It's important for a city or a family or a church or a business or a company to stay true to the heart uh, that it was founded with. Okay? You don't want to see drift. And so... When, a, when a, the founder, like William Penn, says this is what we're about, it should be made public. It should be known. Now, Jesus himself had prayers that we still have recorded in Scripture. That One of them is called the High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus actually prays that his disciples would be united, that they would be one as he and the Father are one. That's a lot more than just getting along and shaking hands. How much did Jesus and the Father get along? That's how much he wants his disciples to get along in the high priestly prayer. So that's a, just like we have William Penn's prayer up on a plaque in City Hall, we have Jesus' prayer right here on a, the Bible, on the pages of Scripture. We have the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and, and, and so on and so forth. These are prayers of the head of the church, Jesus that are recorded and written down for us to revisit from time to time. And not only do we have prayers from Jesus, in Ephesians we have two apostolic prayers from the Apostle Paul. 
Paul, who went around Asia Minor and parts of Europe and parts of North Africa, planting and establishing churches, he prayed for the churches, and we have some of those written down in the New Testament. And in the book of Ephesians, there are two prayers that Paul prayed for the churches that he founded and he started. Today we're going to look at one of those, and in a few weeks we'll get to the second. So today we're looking at what I'm calling apostolic prayer number one. Okay? So let me read this really quickly. It's just three slides. It's not very long. This is the prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. He said, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and unlike any week I've ever done, I'm giving you all the points in advance, okay? So please try to stay awake, even though I'm giving the answers to the test at the beginning of the test. Okay, this prayer has three main parts. He starts off with thanksgiving. He's essentially saying, I'm grateful to God that I've already heard of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, or your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes into intercession. This is where he actually prays. Okay, this, and he's praying not just thanks that they know Jesus, but he's saying, now I want them to know Jesus more. Or, as William Penn would have said it, more better, because he's from Philly. <laughs> and I want them to know Jesus more better, Lord. And then he wraps up with praise because he's not only praying that they would know Jesus more better, but then he tells them about Jesus. He's like, I'll just go ahead and help answer this prayer, and I'm going to take a couple of verses and tell you more stuff about Jesus that you haven't heard yet. So this whole thing is about Jesus. He is grateful, he's giving thanksgiving that they know Jesus, but he's praying that they know Jesus more, and then he tells them more about Jesus. This whole prayer is Christ-centered, and it's apostolic because it comes from Paul. Now, I mentioned that, this is an apostolic prayer, and I want to tell you why I'm calling it an apostolic prayer. Uh, the Apostle Paul was the apostle that went around traveling and starting these churches, and he was an apostle. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, so Timothy and Paul are not the same people, and they functioned differently. They related differently to the church. Timothy as the pastor who oversaw the day-to-day -day, uh, and cared for the people, shepherded the people, made sure that they were protected, uh, fed them spiritually, did all the things that you would expect of a, a spiritual shepherd or a pastor. Paul was apostolic in his leadership in that he was initiating and he was founding the church and he was providing oversight. So in the New Testament, in the Bible, apostles and pastors are not the same thing. And in a few months, we're going to actually get to Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 
where Paul says there are apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists and teachers, and they are not all the same thing. I think generally we want them to all be the same thing. We want one person that can do all of those, and that's just not the way Jesus designed it. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are different, and I'll tell you a little bit about why, although we will get into this in depth in a few months. Pastors shepherd, apostles lead, or I should say it this way, pastoral leadership is a shepherding type of leadership, apostolic leadership is a visionary type of leadership, and a pioneering type of leadership. In the New Testament, the word apostle means sent one. In fact, the consummate, number one, primary, most famous apostle is not Paul, it's Jesus. In Hebrews, it actually says Jesus is an apostle. Was Jesus a sent one? You better bet. Sent from heaven to earth to establish and initiate a church, right? And while Ephesians 2.20 says that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, it says Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. So, you know, we have a cornerstone out in the front of our building. We have a whole foundation. It's fil- I saw it last week because we didn't have walls in the basement. I saw the foundation. It's a bunch of ugly old stones, but they're very important. If they crumble, the whole building's coming down. But we have one cornerstone. Many foundation stones in Apostles and Prophets, one cornerstone in Jesus. And the cornerstone is what guides the setting of all the other stones. You set the cornerstone, and that's how you know where a straight line is in every direction. So everything's measured off the cornerstone. That's Jesus. Apostles and prophets are are foundational, but Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, Apostles in the New Testament were sent and set. Paul was, it says Paul was set aside for specific ministry. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. They had specific ministries that they were sent to and set in. And also, look at the way that Paul relates. As you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you see that he doesn't relate to them the same way a pastor does. He's always referring to them as like he's the spiritual father and they are his children. It's more of a fatherly relationship than a shepherding relationship. Does that make sense? So there are differences there. Um, and, And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying we need to understand that they're not the same thing. This prayer is not necessarily a pastoral prayer. It's an apostolic prayer. It is a fatherly prayer. It is the prayer of their spiritual father and his concern for them. So he's grateful uh, and shows thankfulness that they know Jesus. He wants them to know Jesus more, and then he tells them more about Jesus. Everybody got that? All right, so we could be done right now, but I got like 30 more minutes, so I'm going to go ahead and make the most of this, okay? No one thinks that's funny? All right. All right. Uh, We start off with Thanksgiving. We read here that Paul says, for this reason, and then there's a comma, so we're going to skip comma and go to, for this reason, I make mention of you in my prayers. Okay, so he's saying, this is why I've been praying for you. Okay, what's the reason? It's twofold. First, for this reason, I've heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. Paul heard how much faith they have in Jesus. Like, rumors started spreading that these Ephesian believers had great faith in Jesus. Have you ever heard a good rumor about yourself? 
Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I, I would just love to one day. I'm thinking about starting one. Uh, but, but their faith was so strong that he heard about it from another continent. And he was so encouraged by that that it caused him to start praying for them. And he didn't just hear about their faith in the Lord Jesus, which is vertical. He also heard about their love for one another, which is horizontal. They're really covering all their bases here. I mean, they love the Lord their God and their neighbor as themselves. They're fulfilling the two greatest commandments here. They have great faith in the Lord Jesus, and they have love for one another. Their faith in Jesus is being demonstrated by their care for those around them, which is the ultimate demonstration of your faith in Jesus. Not how many Bible verses you can memorize or how many words in other languages you know, but your love for other people, okay? Don't try to substitute other things in for your love for other people. Paul hears about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for one another, and he hears this good news, and he is prompted or provoked to pray. I know that we respond to news with prayer, but often we respond to bad news with prayer. And when we hear good news, we aren't as quick to pray. I mean, look at, Paul heard good news and was like, ah, I owe God gratitude. I owe God thankfulness. I return to God gratitude for what I've heard, which is good news. It's easy to pray in response to bad news. You hear that you're going to lose your job. Yeah, you turn into a prayer warrior all of a sudden. All of a sudden, you're at every prayer meeting. You know, you got a prayer list. Would you do that if you heard you were getting a promotion? Would a promotion prompt you to pray? Boy, that was hard to say. Would a promotion prompt you to pray the way a dismissal would? It should. Good news should also provoke prayer in you. When there's a, I'm going to quote Fred Hartley here, when there's a gap between our experience of God and the gratitude we return to him, that gap rots our souls. If, if you experience God's goodness way up here, but the praise you give him is way down here. That difference creates soul rot. Okay? So if you experience God's goodness up here, you better get the praise closer. You know, all the way up if you can. Although I'm human, so you know I, I might get here. But the, the smaller the gap, the better. You want to return to God gratitude for the good things that he's done in your life. Not just be an anxiety-driven, fear-driven prayer. Does that make sense? So Paul's provoked a prayer by good news, that they love Jesus and that they love each other. So he starts this whole thing off with gratitude. It's both vertical and horizontal. Then he moves to intercession. Here's the content of the actual prayer. This is him telling them why he was praying, but this is the actual prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So let me summarize this prayer. He starts off with, I'm grateful that you know Jesus. Now I'm going to pray that you know Jesus more. Okay? And this prayer has two parts. The first part is, here's how I want you to get to know Jesus more. And the second part is, here's what I want you to get to know about Jesus. You following that? How I want you to learn about Jesus and then also, what I want you to learn about Jesus. So, how does he want them to learn about Jesus? Is it through Bible study? Is it through uh, reading a, a, a Christian book? What is it through? Is it by church attendance? He says, 
I'm praying that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So wisdom and revelation that will help us grow in our knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, and I'm just going to cut it off right there for now. So he prays that they would have wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment, or what I'm going to call illumination. Illumination and enlightenment are the same thing in this context. So he wants them to have wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment. So let me, I'm going to define those three things, but let me first say, those are all gifts from God. You can't decide, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to just get some revelation today. God has to give that to you. Okay? Uh, these are things that come from God. Now, I will give you some practical tips on how to receive these things, but you can't just force this. Okay? This is something that God gives you. So first, uh, what is wisdom? I'm going to borrow from two pastors, uh, one Tim Keller and the other Mike Plunkett. This is how I want to define wisdom. The ability to know good from bad when there is no moral code. Okay? So when there is no Bible verse, or there is no commandment, or there is no scripture that tells you which job to take, or which house to buy, or which car to buy, or who to marry. When there is no scripture to tell you that, that's where you need wisdom. You've got to have wisdom. Because the Bible's going to give you lots of really good principles. So when it, let's say, for instance, you're, we're talking about marriage. Okay, We know from scripture, adultery is obviously out the window. Cheating is out the window. Uh, fornication is out the window. So we know all of that. Then we get to, okay, I want to make sure that the person I marry, I'm not unequally yoked, that they're walking with Jesus at the same pace I'm walking with Jesus, or they're walking faster so I can, they can carry me along. So I want to be equally yoked. So I'm not going to marry a person who does not have faith in Jesus. I'm not going to marry a person who is not serious about their faith in Jesus. So all of that, okay, that helps us narrow it down. But still, it doesn't tell us, should we get married? To whom should we get married? It might narrow the field, but it doesn't give us an, a name, a social security number. You know, When should we get married? What date? It doesn't tell us where we should live. Like there, so that's where wisdom kicks in. Wisdom informed by scripture, with some guidance from other people, kicks in and helps you determine some of those decisions. The Bible doesn't tell you where to work. It says you should have a job, but it doesn't tell you where. Right? So you need wisdom. The Bible doesn't tell you where to live. It says that you should be a good neighbor and love your neighbors, but it doesn't say where. So that's where God, we need God's wisdom to try to figure this stuff out. There are biblical principles that will guide us so far, but at some point we need God to give us wisdom. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, it says in James, ask God, and he will give generously, give wisdom generously to all of us without finding fault. I like that without finding fault part. Because he could be like, well, I would give you wisdom, but like, you know, Jim, have you seen how you've been living life? He doesn't do that. He doesn't find fault. If, even if you are the most foolish person who's made as many bad decisions as possible, he doesn't find fault because he knows that those foolish, foolish, foolish decisions actually highlight your need for wisdom, and he gives it generously, not a little dab, but a lot. So if you need wisdom, ask God. 
he gives it. Okay? Now, revelation. What is revelation? Revelation is when God shows you something. Another word for it might be discernment. Okay? So I picture it sometimes like this. Picture you're looking forward and there's, there's a curtain and you can't see what's on the other side of the curtain. You know there's something on the other side of the curtain, but you don't know what it is. And God pulls the curtain back and shows you what's there. You need God to pull the per- curtain back. I've had countless times in my life where I'm like, Lord, I know there's more here. I know there's something going on, but I cannot figure it out. I need you to show it to me. And it's happened even recently where a conversation with a friend or sometimes even in a dream or a picture that God gives, all of a sudden it's like, boom, curtain's removed and you see crystal clear what's on the other side of that curtain. That's revelation and that is also a gift from God. Now while you cannot force revelation, there are certain things you can do to help you receive revelation and be a good revelation receiver. The first is that you are fully devoted to the Lord. The higher devotion, the devotion level in your life, the easier it is for you to receive revelation. Listen, when you're not sure about following Jesus, it makes it really hard to hear from him because there's a lot of other voices talking too. But when you've made a full commitment, even if it's imperfect, a full commitment with full devotion to Jesus, his voice becomes clearer in your life. Another thing you can do to help you receive revelation is commit to obey whatever you hear. It's that, it's that heart that prays, Lord, whatever you say, I'll do it. That's when he starts dropping nuggets on you. But when you say, well, you know, Lord, speak, and then I'll, uh, I'll evaluate your opinion on the matter, he's like, well, then I won't speak. And you can just figure this out on your own. When you've committed to obey what he tells you, he'll start speaking. When you move into rebellion, which is equal to witchcraft, when you move into rebellion, I notice God gets quiet. I think it's his way of saying, I already told you, and you haven't done that yet. When you do that, we'll move on to the next thing. Does that make sense? There's a man named, a great, great theologian who's still alive named Jack Deere who said that the clearer the revelation or the clearer that God speaks to you, the harder it's going to be to obey him. And I think that that's true. We think that when God speaks clearly, it's going to be like smooth sailing. There's a reason he spoke clearly. Because you're going to come upon some situations that might cause you to doubt him. And you're going to have to go back to, yeah, but it was so clear. I know it doesn't look good right now. This is not fun. I'm not enjoying this. But man, God was so clear, I still cannot doubt it. The clearer the revelation, the harder the task. So, I I don't want to be a downer, but if God speaks to you really clearly, there's a reason for it. I would write that down ASAP, because you're going to be recalling that when things get tough. Okay? All right. Uh, So, that's wisdom and revelation. And then finally, uh, illumination. Illumination is when God shines light on something. Here's what I mean by that. God's word, the Bible, it's big. <laughs> 1,189 chapters. It's a big book. Not only is God's word big, God's world is big. The universe is big. There's more to God's world than what you and I have experienced. Okay? 
So sometimes God does us a favor and he shines light on something. And he's Because if we didn't have help from God, we would just be distracted all the time. But sometimes God does us a favor. He's like, pay attention to this right here. This passage in the Bible, this thing in your life, this conflict that you're dealing with, or whatever it is, this opportunity, he says, I'm going to shine a light, a light bulb on this. Pay attention to this. That's illumination. I've had this happen as I've read the Bible. Actually, it was in Ephesians. I was reading Ephesians years ago, the end of Ephesians. And I got to the passage that says, uh, don't grow tired of doing good, but continue to sow good seed for those that sow in the flesh will reap from the flesh, but those who sow in the Spirit will reap from the Spirit. Have you ever heard that passage? Maybe that's Galatians. Yeah, it's Galatians, not Ephesians. I remember reading that in a Chick-fil-A, which, that's another thing to help you receive revelation, actually. Read the Bible in Chick-fil-A. So, I remember reading that passage, and I'm telling you, the words on the page looked double font, like double big. They stood out. And that was God saying, pay attention to that. You could get lost in all 1,189 chapters today. Today, this is the verse for you. I want you to pay attention to that. And I just took note, and I wrote like, man, the, the letters just seemed to jump off the page. They seemed bigger. And then I read the next passage. Then the very next verse was Paul writing, see with what large letters I write with my very own handwriting. And I was like, whoa, this is a thing? I couldn't believe that, because apparently when Paul wrote it originally, it was so important, he decided to do like bold, all caps, emojis, all that stuff, just to draw their attention to what, I'm what I just said about sowing seed is so important, I'm going to write it bigger. See how big I wrote it? So... That's an example of illumination. When you wake up in the morning and read the Bible, and then go to church and the sermon is on the same passage, and then go home and the song on the radio is about the same passage, it's not a coincidence. Most likely it's not a coincidence. All right, That is an example of illumination. When God is helping you out and saying, hey, pay attention to this right now. This is what I'm saying to you. Knock, knock, knock. I'm trying to get through to you. All you can do, you can't make that happen. All you can do is make sure you pay attention when it does happen. Okay? So don't ignore those things, okay? Now, uh, that's wisdom, revelation, and illumination. Paul is praying. He's saying, this is the way I want you to get to know God. I want you to get to know God through revelation. I want you to get to know God through exercising wisdom. I want you to get to know God by paying attention to what he's illuminating in your life. Not through hard work, not through these, you know, I mean, I'm for hard work, especially when it comes to getting to know Jesus. But he's saying, today, this is what I'm praying for you. Wisdom, revelation, illumination. This is the way I want you to get to know God. And then he goes to, here's what I want you to get to know about Jesus. Three things. What is, his, uh, what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? These are the three things I want, Paul's saying, these are the three things I want you to know about Jesus in this prayer. So we're going to do those really quickly. The hope of his calling is referring to when Jesus saves us, when Jesus calls us out of darkness into light, it 
instills in us hope. And hope is not the little sliver of like, well, you know, maybe. That's not hope. Hope is confidence. The hope of Jesus' calling isn't like, well, Jesus saved me. Maybe it's real. Maybe I'll make it to heaven. There's a chance. Anything's possible. That's not hope. Hope is saying, Jesus has saved me, and I'm confident that I'm going to see him someday, that I'm going to be joined with him in heaven. We think hope is like that last little sliver that says, so you're saying there's a chance. We, we equate hope with like winning the lottery. You know, if you play six digits a day, your chance of winning the lottery is one in 14 million. We think that's hope. Well, there's a 1 in 14 million chance I could win. You know, who, anything's possible. That's not hope. Here's what hope is. Hope is a retirement plan that says, hey, over the course of 40 years, I know this is going to work. Maybe this year was rough. Maybe this quarter was rough. This is going to take a while. But I know that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when I cash out, it's going to be there. And I'm going to be able to live off this. It's confidence. Not a little sliver of anything's possible, but confidence that says, I know this is going to work. I'm confident that this is going to carry itself out. When we experience the hope of God's calling, it's confidence that he has truly saved us, that his sacrifice is truly sufficient to redeem us and reconcile us to God. Not a, uh, a like a wing and a prayer, maybe this will work but absolute confidence, and that uh, instills hope in us. So that's the hope of his calling. Also, uh, Paul wants us to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I always get confused in the Bible when it talks about inheritance, because I'm like, who's inheriting what now? Okay, in this passage, it's talking about the inheritance that Jesus receives from the Father. Okay? The inheritance that Jesus receives from the Father. And it says that the inheritance is the saints, us. That we are Jesus' inheritance. What is the Father giving to Jesus? You and me. Okay? We are Jesus' inheritance. And I'm sure that Jesus is a good steward who's grateful and appreciative, so he knows how to keep us. He knows how to protect us and not waste us. There are people that waste their inheritances, and then there are people that manage their inheritance as well. When I was in college, my grandfather died, and my inheritance was a 1995 Ford Explorer. That thing was beat up immediately. I learned so much about how not to have a car. By having, that was my first like, real car that I owned, and uh, it had rust on it, and I thought that I could keep the... <laughs> this is so embarrassing because I was an adult when I did this. I thought that, oh, well, there's rust on it. I don't want the rust to get worse, so I melted a candle and rubbed candle wax on the, on the rusty parts. And then what would happen, is like in the summer in July, it would get hot, and I would just have candle wax dripping down the side of the car. <laughs> this is a true story. Uh, does that work, Scott? No? Okay, no. Well, all right. So apparently, when you wax your car, it's not candle wax. Is the, that's the moral of that story. So I had that car for about 18 months. Um, 
That was my inheritance, man. I tried to make that thing last. I, I, was, you know, I was young, so I didn't exactly know what I was doing, but I valued it. I valued it deeply. It was from my grandfather, and it, was, it represented freedom to me, because here I have a car now. Um, but Jesus values his inheritance, and unlike me, he knows how to manage it. He knows how to keep it. He knows how to maintain you. He knows how to keep you safe. He knows how to preserve you. He knows how to protect you. That's the glory of this inheritance is uh, we belong to Jesus now. And we've been given to him by God the Father. And then the last thing that Paul wants them to know is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. God is all-powerful. The word for that is omnipotent. He has all the power in the world, and he exercises it toward preserving you and me, the church, the Christians. I mean, who's the one that sustains us? God. Who's the one that creates us? God. Who's the one that saves us? God. Who's the one that uh, protects us? God. His power, which is unlimited, is exerted on our behalf to protect us and keep us. That should be encouraging. That should help you sleep better at night. That should address your anxiety and fear issues. The fact that God's unlimited power is exerted toward us, toward protecting us, uh, preserving us, and saving us. That's what Paul wants them to know about Jesus. The riches of his inheritance, the glory of his inheritance, the hope of his calling, and the greatness of his power. He wants them to receive that information through the means of wisdom, revelation, and illumination. And then, uh, finally, Paul tells them a little more about Jesus in the final slide here, the final portion. He says three things about Jesus that they probably did not know yet. In verse 20 it says, Jesus was raised from the dead, they probably already knew that. I don't know how they established a church without knowing about the resurrection. But they probably did not know these following three things. That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. I don't know that they knew that yet. Hadn't been written, hadn't been discussed. It says in verse 20, I believe, yeah, that uh, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, which means that in the heavenly places, which are the spiritual world and the spiritual realm, God is seating, sitting on a throne, and directly to his right is Jesus. They're not in a different room. They're not doing different things. Jesus and the Father are right next to each other. Now, when I, you know, when Kendra and I teach our kids the Bible, we of course start with God is everywhere. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, so behave. That's a good parenting tip. God is everywhere. Now, inevitably, though, they get smart. They say, well, how come I can't see him? Ah, so that only got me through to like when Aiden was five. Then he was like, why can't I see him? So we had to actually start teaching our kids good theology. <laughs> And I, so I had to tell them, well, listen, Jesus did die, and he did come back from the dead. Then he ascended to heaven. And where Jesus physically is, while he is everywhere in his omnipresence, physically in a body, he's seated at the right hand of God. So if you want to know where is Jesus, at the right hand of God. That's where he is right now. The Holy Spirit is on the earth. Yep, from Pentecost on. Jesus ascended. Jesus said, it's better for me to go back because then the Holy Spirit will come. That's what he was talking about. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and you know what he's doing? Praying for you and me. I mean, I love the idea that God's on a throne and right next to him is Jesus in his ear. 
hey, let me pray for Jim real quick. I like that. That sounds good to me. Um, now, all through the New Testament, you read Jesus is seated, 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 seated. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven interceding for us, seated at the right hand of the Father. But there's one story in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 6, uh, chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, where Stephen is, becomes the first Christian martyr. He's the first person to die for their faith in Jesus. And when he's dying, he looks up in the, into the sky and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Which means that while Jesus is usually seated at the right hand of God, when a person, when Stephen gave his life up for Jesus, Jesus stood up. And I think Jesus gets on his feet for martyrs. When a person gives their life for Jesus, he's not seated, he's standing. Almost like a standing ovation. And then he goes back to seated. He's generally seated, but there is this one story, it's the only place in the whole Bible where Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. And it's when someone gives their life up for Jesus. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, says he's above all rule, power, uh, authority and dominion in verse 21 and every name that is named. That means that there's no name that's higher than Jesus. There's no power higher than Jesus' power. There's no one that has more authority than Jesus. This is saying that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is superior. His power is superior. His name is superior. His authority is superior. Everything about Jesus is superior. Superior than what? Well, the rulers, the dominions, the powers. What's that referring to? It's referring to the physical, natural, you know, government and influence and authority on the earth. But it's also referring to spiritual power and spiritual dominion. So not only is Jesus greater than the government, Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus is greater than any territorial demon that might be over a certain place. Jesus is greater than the culture. Jesus is greater than the economy. Jesus is greater than you. Let's make it personal. So Jesus is supreme and superior to all these things, and God put him there. God decided to do that, and it says in Philippians 2, the reason everybody's going to bow to Jesus is because of Jesus' humility. There's a principle there for us that humility uh, is valued by God. God exalts the humble, but he actually opposes the proud. Final thing that we see about Jesus is that he's the head of all things. Verse 22, he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet, and he gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of all things but he is given as head to the church. If Jesus is head over all things, that means he's, he's the head of everything in your life. Everything. But he's given to the church, which uh, is an inference to the influential role the church should play on the earth. If the head of all things is ultimately the head of the church, shouldn't the church play a role on the earth? Shouldn't the church have influence. Now we get our influence through service, not through the exercise of political power and other things. We get our influence through humility 
and uh, sacrifice and evangelism and things like that. But uh, Jesus is the head of all things, but he's given to the church. Now, here's what I like, really love about this concept. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, above all rule and authority, over all things. Uh, everything's in subjection under his feet. And in two weeks, when we read Ephesians 2.6, it's going to say this. You, Christian, are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Which means that your position, your legal standing, is right there with Jesus. Like, I don't know if you're on his lap, or you have a little kitty chair next to him, but you're seated with him in heavenly places. And you have access to all this truth that we're learning about Jesus. Now, the reason uh, that this is so important for us to get our heads around is, as I've said many, many times, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer said that 60-some years ago. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you think God's grumpy, you'll act like you have a grumpy God. If you think he's distant, you'll act like you have a distant God. But if you think he's good, if you have an accurate picture of Jesus, living the victorious Christian life will just come naturally. Everything we do is our response to our concept of what God is like. The way we treat other people, the way we operate at our jobs, it's the way we live our marriages. It's all reaction and response to what we think God is like. So let's make sure that our concept of God is accurate. A.W. Tozer went on to say, and I'm paraphrasing, that a high view of God leads to high worship and holy living. But a low view of God leads to low worship and moral compromise. So how high an image of God should we have? How high a picture of God should we have? Well, exactly. As high as you can... Listen, no one's ever gone too high. God's never at any point said, whoa, 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 chill out on all that reverence. There's never been a person that went overboard on thinking too much about God. It's always that we fall short. You can't possibly, it is literally impossible for you to think too greatly of God. As good as you can get your concept of God, he's better than that. You're just going to have to wait till you know, eternity to grow your understanding and your knowledge of what God is like. But on this earth, you can't go too high. So let's just see how far we can go with this. How high a view of Jesus can we have? How strong an opinion in favor of God can we have? How devoted could we actually be? Let's just see how far we can go with that. You know, Let's not play around and be like, yeah, I think I'm pretty much done, pretty much figured out this Christianity thing. Pretty much got to know everything there is to know about God. Oof, what a dangerous place to be. Because it's wrong. Once you think you've got your head wrapped around God... You haven't. So this is what I want to do as we close. I want to pray a prayer along these lines that we would also know Jesus more better. That we would go deeper, that we would grow in our knowledge of him and that he would use things like wisdom and revelation and illumination to achieve that. So, would you mind standing? I want to pray for us.
Jesus, just like you prayed for your disciples that they would love one another the way that you and the Father love each other, just like Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus that they would grow in their knowledge of you, I pray for us at Truvine that we would grow in all of these things, in our understanding of the hope of your calling, the riches of your glorious inheritance, your power exerted toward us, Lord. We want to know all of that, Jesus. We want to know everything that you will permit us to know about you in this life. We want to see how far you will let us go with this, Jesus. And I ask that you would use things like wisdom and revelation and illumination. Those are all gifts that come from you. Would you pour those gifts out also that we grow in wisdom, that we receive revelation well, and that we are attentive to illumination when you speak to us, Jesus. We want everything that you have for us, Lord. Even, Jesus, no matter the cost, we want to know you more. I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.